Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky. Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Tony, what is going on? A lot is going on, Jesse. That's why I asked. I'm excited. I know. There's so much going on. So you know this, obviously, and we're putting on this uh, awesome ruse to make it seem like we're announcing it to each other, but we are so excited to be the first podcast to announce the launch of a newly formed podcast network called the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Yes. How awesome is that? Yeah, I'm super stoked. This is going to be good stuff. So what are some of the details? Yeah, so we're still in the preliminary working everything out stages, but uh, there right now we have uh, this show and two other great shows. Uh, we have Fast God Stuff, which you also co-host, co-host yeah, with uh, Conrad Tolosa, who is the former guitar player, lead singer, yes. right? songwriter. Yes, all uh, those of things. The amazing uh, Christian pop punk band Goaty Hook. So if you are familiar with Goaty Hook, then you should check that out. And uh, you guys sing a lot, don't you? We do. It's very musical and very reformed. It is. I'm I'm a big fan of the show. Uh, and the other uh, member of the network, uh, probably no surprise to our frequent listeners, is Matt Butts on the Reformed Outlook. Matt Butts! So he, uh, he is still on the quest for the holy grail of the perfect podcast co-host, but uh, he's doing a great job over on the Reformed Outlook. They're crushing it. Uh, they're doing some really cool stuff. Um, so the three shows are starting off. Uh, we may or may not be adding more shows in the future. Uh, we're getting ready to launch the website and uh, get some other stuff ready to go. But uh, you guys should definitely stay tuned because there's a lot of exciting stuff coming down the pike. So definitely go subscribe to Reformed Outlook, Fast God Stuff. There's going to be a lot of great stuff that you're going to enjoy. Absolutely. And we'll put uh, links to those RSS feeds and show websites into the uh, notes for today. You will not be disappointed if what you thought is I need more Reformed theology, more doxology in my life from all different people, different walks of life, different perspectives. That's kind of what we're going for here is a good collective of like-minded podcasters that are serious about worshiping God, especially through good theology. Yep, absolutely. So Jesse, what do we got on tap for today? Yeah, speaking of good theology, so which, you know, is what we do. It is what we do. Humble brag. So one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is something that gets thrown out, a criticism even that gets leveraged, leveraged, levered against uh, reformed theology. And that is this idea of reformed evangelism, which some people feel is just straight up a contradiction of terms. But I've been thinking about what it means to really take seriously the full counsel of God when it comes to preaching the gospel. And so I just kind of keep falling into this rut of what does it mean to be reformed and evangelistic. 
And so for me, it goes back even before like kind of trying to parse out the nuances of different theological streams. To me, it goes back to this idea that I think sometimes right now in our contemporary Christian culture, we have this confused perspective on what it means to preach the gospel. And for me, the quintessential embodiment of that confusion is a quote that I'm sure, Tony, that you have heard used before that drives me up because you're laughing already, which I love, yes. drives me up the wall. Yes. So let me just say it. And then I'll say, I want to say two things about why this is like totally wrong and start our conversation off with this idea that we've kind of got preaching the gospel backwards. So sure. the quote is often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi and it is preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Yes. So that I, sounds super cute, right? It does. But there's two things wrong with it. One, never said that. And two, the gospel message uses words, although of course its expression is not completely impounded by words, but it's just simply impossible to preach the gospel without words. I mean, the gospel is inherently verbal and preaching the gospel is inherently verbal behavior. So I wanted to start off with this, just talking about getting your perspective on this idea that I think part of where we've kind of gone off course here is getting liberty or license with a through a quote like this to just think, well, you know, maybe it's not my particular gifting and I don't really like to preach and I don't really want to communicate, you know, the gospel in straightforward language. So what I'm going to do is just kind of smuggle in this idea that if I can just be a good enough person, that really is my act of preaching the gospel. So that, that's why I feel like we, I want to start because I think that has thrown us into all kinds of confusion. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And, it, you know, one of those, just a side note, it drives me nuts when I find quotes that are attributed to people and I either can't prove that that person actually said it or I find out that it's not. So like there's there's um, quotes that circulate by Jonathan Edwards. And if you look them up, they're actually like attributed to like 15 or 16 different people. And it's like, that's a pretty sure sign that's not. What was another one? Um, Augustine says something like growing a beard is a most godly habit or some some nonsense like that. And there's no, there's like no evidence that he ever said anything like that. And or, that also gets attributed to Spurgeon too, right? It does also get attributed to Spurgeon. Yeah. Or, and there's no evidence that that Augustine had a beard. I mean, he probably did, but like, that's not, you know, it's not like a big feature of his theology was that he had a beard. So, so I agree with you that that drives me nuts. But, but when you get to the substance of that quote, um, I think the main problem is, as you've identified, is that we get this idea that like, well, maybe if we live nice enough, good enough lives that, you know, it will, um, it'll like convince people to follow Jesus. And if you think you can f live a good enough life, you're wrong. Like you can't. So like, that's the first mistake in this kind of weird, I don't know if you want to call it like experiential theology, like experiential evangelism, whatever you might call it, is that if we rely on like the purity of our lives or like our kindness or gentleness to convert people, rather than the gospel being proclaimed and the Holy Spirit working on hearts, like we're going to fail necessarily because we're, as much as it's true that the Holy Spirit changes us, we're still fallen, broken creatures who screw up constantly. You know what I right. mean? Right. And what always floors me is that God, in an act of condescension, it, with his infinite being, has in a finite way encapsulated the gospel, which is good news, which uses words right. in language. So he's actually delivered it to us by a great gift and said, use these words to proclaim the message that Jesus has come. So here's a more modern example, because I, I was thinking, whenever I think about this, I think of St. Francis in the quote, which is just straight up wrong. But I do think of a more modern example. 
And we are going to get, or at least I'm going to get, potential serious uh, hate mail from anybody who's like really in love with Chris Tomlin. But here it goes. <laughs> I have nothing against Chris Tomlin, but he writes some funky stuff sometimes. He does. And one of those songs is called Unspeakable Joy. Have you heard this? It sounds familiar. but it's, It would be know. very familiar to most people because what he's done is he took the Isaac Watts hymn, Joy to the World, and then he just inserted some choruses. And I'm not necessarily a fan of that, but here's where the lyric just gets strange for me. So everybody will, will recognize immediately. Joy to the World is about the second coming of Christ, and it's speaking about that message using language. So right. I just want to preface that way. It sounds obvious, but here's the setup. So the chorus goes, joy, unspeakable joy, an overflowing well, no tongue can tell, joy, unspeakable joy, rises in my soul, never lets me go. <laughs> so the weird thing about this to me is we've just sung at least the first verse, which is telling in words again of the second coming of Christ. And then we get to the chorus where it just emphasizes that you actually can't tell this at all. Like it's now I understand that he's <laughs> emphasizing there's like an emotion here that's overwhelming, but he's actually speaking and people are like regurgitating by way of these words or in their minds later as they rehearse them, the song in their head, the melody that there's something about the message of Jesus that's just so great. We can't, we can't even talk about it. So why even bother? Because it's overflowing and it's unspeakable and no tongue can tell it. And that's why I just feel like, wow, we are so off the mark because what God commands is for us to actually go out and speak. Do you know what I mean? I do. And it's funny too, because another Chris Tomlin song that I had, I, I had identified this and I use this as an example of how like pious, pious sounding language can really go off the rails is a song indescribable. Right. Yes. So the first yeah. word of the chorus is indescribable. And then it's followed by a bunch of descriptions. Yes, exactly. Like, like think through things here. What are you doing? But yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right is we have to, you know, we have to be cautious about how we describe God, um, because if we describe him in ways that makes him ineffable or undescribable, then then like we've totally cut ourselves off at the knee. And in the same way, if we make the gospel something that can't be communicated in words, we're really in trouble because, um, you know, in Romans it says, well, how will they know if they haven't heard and how will they hear if no one goes to preach? Um, and now I think it probably bears saying that when we talk about like verbal communication, we're not necessarily talking about audible verbal communication. So, um, you know, if you have friends that are deaf or hearing impaired or whatever, um, that's not saying like, well, they're outside of the reach of the gospel. Like, obviously that's not what we're talking about. And I've actually had people say that when I try to say the gospel is verbal, like the gospel is, has to do with words and communicating verbally. They, well, are you saying deaf people can't be safe? No, of course not. But even when you're talking about sign language, which is not, you know, in, in a lot of ways is a very different kind of language than like a spoken English or whatever. Um, we're still communicating verbally when we're talking about written words on a page, we're still communicating verbally. And it's no, um, it's no small coincidence that when, you know, when John wants to start his gospel, he says that the word became flesh. There's a thousand yes. other ways to describe, you know, what the son is in relation to the father and he chose to use the phrasing that the father spoke and he he's tying back to Genesis one. And of course there are other places where it says that like Christ is the image of the invisible God. But when John was trying to say, let me, let me start off and tell you about Jesus word. He's, he's talking about verbal revelation. Um, and that's really important because we're a people, we're a people of the book and we're a people of words. And so often in kind of our modern 
um, not so much the reformed, but sort of reformed-ish, evangelical-ish culture, we've turned the gospel away from being a revelation of words into being something completely different. You know, and there's like this push for incarnational missions or um, sort of missional living in, in community. And there's a good impulse in that. But we have to make sure we're grounding all of our missionary and evangelistic uh, enterprises in not only in the scripture as God's word, but in the proclaimed gospel as um, representatives of God preaching and proclaiming that word. I'm glad you said it that way, because even hearing you say that just now, it struck me as if we go experiential, if we go pictorial in terms of representing the gospel, we may very quickly find ourselves in trouble. And it, I do like the fact that John was very specific with the use of the word. I mean, there's something like overarching about that that saves us from going into error quickly when we go back to the word as the place where we start. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so what else about that quote bothers you? Because other than not being attributed to Francis, like what what is the main issues with that in terms of like, yeah, you have to use words. But I feel like the problems with that quote go deeper than that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of stuff, I think, that's because it's centered around this idea of evangelism. But really, the thing that I really struggle with the most is I feel when it is often used and it's when it's used like sincerely, that there's this sense where it's giving us license to not take an active effort to, as Peter said, be prepared to make a defense. Right. In other words, I kind of feel like it gives us liberty to be passive in our display of the gospel, because who even knows what it means to preach the gospel just totally in action, aside from being a nice person and doing good things. But if if all the good things that you do don't result in saving anybody, what what's the use of even those good things? So I think everybody has met super amazing people, and there are several in my life I can think of right now, that you commune with them, you spend time with them, and you walk away thinking, man, if that person were a Christian, would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, mainly what bothers me is just that it kind of gives us liberty to, I think, pull away from the gospel or, or the gospel, or at least not listen to the direct instruction of Jesus uh, for me, at least. What, what else bothers you about it? Well, I mean, I think it all circles around this idea that we are not responsible, first of all, to preach the word, but in, in a derivative sense, we're responsible to know the word. Right. And so like kind of combined with this idea of, of preach the gospel, use words when necessary is I've heard people justify like not studying scripture because they turn to that passage uh, in one of the gospels where Jesus says, well, the Holy spirit will put words in your mouth. And um, on one level, that's an incredibly comforting um a comforting passage because it's it's not us that's doing the proclaiming it's the holy spirit through us and so we don't have to be nervous about oh did i memorize the bible well enough we can trust that the holy spirit will bring to mind what he's put you know what we've studied and what we've learned but we have to learn those things first right i agree and that goes back to again this is somewhat i'm circling around you but that a lack of biblical knowledge results in that kind of erroneous thought that we only associate the Holy Spirit with things that are extemporaneous or unrehearsed as if he is not present in bringing order out of chaos, like wanting us to practice and to bring to bear and to become intimately familiar with the scriptures as if he will only be in a place where he's just going to show up and it's going to be like a, a jazz piece as opposed to like, you know, like a, a really well-rehearsed classical ensemble 
that's put together something that's very well practiced. That was a really horrible metaphor, but do you know what I mean? No, I do. And and like that's that's the point though, is even you know, to try to remedy that or to try to rescue that jazz metaphor. Jazz is a Thank you. Thank jazz you. is a um <laughs> you know, it's a largely spontaneous form of music. But you still have to practice. And so like right. you have to understand how the music works. You have to put in the time to make sure that you understand what sounds good together and what doesn't. And it's the same thing with scripture. Like we don't, we don't come to somebody and just say like, all right, well let's open up to Genesis one and I'm just going to read Genesis one, you know, through revelation 22 to you. And then that's the gospel. We have to understand and be able to see into a given situation and into a given person's um, interaction and be able to trust the Holy Spirit to bring forward the passages and the the way of communicating and all of those things that's um, beneficial for that person. We can't just have a flat presentation for all people all the time. Now I can't let the jazz metaphor go. So even jazz has like a key and a signature and a meter. Right. So you might say like it's, it's 12 bar jazz in the key of E and you need that. So you can only be spontaneous or extemporaneous, like you're saying, within a cognizable framework. And, and we need the scriptures to do that. And it needs to be rehearsed. So, yeah, that, I'm definitely with you on that. I, I think that's trying to get us back to a reform perspective on this. And that is one of the things that as I've grown in trying to understand what it means to be evangelical in the sense of a strong witness and what it means to be reformed, that for me, they suddenly as I started to really weigh the scriptures and understand, especially what all the wonderful men in particular that have come before me who have thought about this in their form perspective have done and taught, they became immediately self-reinforcing. So I, I really have come to the conclusion that when we speak of the power of the gospel, even when Paul speaks of the power of the gospel, that power is the sovereignty of God. Right. And so that is the full weight that drives the gospel out and changes things is still the sovereignty of God. But I think that sometimes even when we speak of the power of the gospel, people often don't know what, what they mean. Uh, they just know, well, it's God's thing and God is powerful. Yeah. But why is it powerful? So, I mean, how, what, what do you think about that? How do you define, what is the power of the gospel for you? Well, I mean, we have to, so there's a distinction, a theological distinction that we talk about, um, the difference between the historia salutis, which is a Latin term for means like the history of salvation and the ordo salutis, which is the order of salvation. And the history of salvation is the actual concrete historical events that took place in order for us to be saved. Right. The order of solution of solution, the order of salvation is the way that those benefits that were obtained by Christ are applied to us. You know, the order that our individual salvation takes. And so I think, you know, we have to start with the Historia Salutis in order to have an understanding of what the power of the gospel is, because the power of the gospel is Christ's, you know, incarnation, his righteous life, his death, his resurrection, all of those things. That's the power of the gospel. So when, you know, even like when you, you, you reference the um, so-called apologetic mandate earlier, 
um, out of Peter about always being prepared to give a defense. Well, if you look at that in context, immediately before and immediately after, he's talking about the resurrection. So right. the defense that he's ready to give isn't um, this logical, rational argument about, you know, how old the earth is and the possibility of the flood, you know, all of this stuff that we tend to think of when we think of apologetics. What it is, is the gospel. It's preaching the gospel to those in that case who are persecuting you and saying the reason that I can stand tall, the reason that I can have good behavior in Christ, and the reason that you're slandering me and reviling me is because of the gospel. Because Christ died and was raised, this suffering that you're pushing me under, that you're persecuting me with, is not the end of the story. That's the power of the gospel, if you ask me, is that Christ has done everything he needs to do to make us his. Amen. Yeah, and that 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 history is governed by God and His wonderful sovereignty. But I, I I'm right on there with you. Is and this that's one of the things that we need to remember. That's why some, this is there's nothing new about this conversation. But my hope is that even as we talk about it, it rehearses a lot of the details that should be on the front of our minds when we're thinking about what it means to communicate what is special about Christianity. And it's exactly that message, and that can't come across any other way. Right. without speaking it out, without being thoughtful in your approach to it. So it's, that's, I think, the thing that's the most important. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. And so um, I think we oh, have to— really agreeable. We are. I mean, th- this—and as you said, this is, <laughs> this is straightforward stuff. Like, this is not um, advanced Christianity. Like, this is, this is the intro to Christianity kind of stuff, is that we have to get the beginning of the gospel right. We have to understand that— all of the programs and tactics and things that we we kind of layer on top of the gospel, um, those are fine as long as the gospel is actually the foundation. And what's dangerous is so often, you know, we layer maybe it's a particular approach to evangelism or it's a particular program or a particular methodology. We layer that on top of the gospel. And the danger is that eventually when we layer this stuff on there, the gospel disappears and we're no longer preaching the gospel. We're doing really nice things for our community or we're presenting the four spiritual laws and we never, or, or we're participating in academic debates and we never actually get to the gospel. So that, I mean, that's, that's why we're landing so hard on saying like, you've got to get the gospel right first because if you don't get the gospel right, all of the other stuff may be, may be nice. And you may be able to convince them to sort of follow you back to your church. But if you're not bringing them in with the gospel, then what are you even doing? Why are you wasting your time? Right. I'm struck because we're about to go into, in our church calendar, a week of VBS. And uh, right. I mean, VBS, VBS is great. It is crazy, but it is great. Yeah. And I do very little, quite honestly. But usually I end up helping out with the music and I'm always struck by the reality that the gospel message that Jesus came, that he died, and that there is a, a true relief and uh, absolution of sin, that a child can gravitate toward that and understand it by the power of the Holy Spirit and sink their little lives into it right away. Absolutely. And yet can spend their entire lifetime trying to work out, understand what that is. And so that's what I think is is beautiful. Like in, in some ways we're saying we need to put first things first. We need to make the plain things the main things and the main things the plain things. And that is something that does not require advanced degrees. It does not require uh, some kind of like Sunday school graduation. It just requires that the Holy Spirit, uh, but through the power of God, come and work in our lives to make us fertile soil. And I love seeing children 
genuinely changed by that because honestly, I have this tendency, the older I get, to think it's more like the former and not the latter. And sometimes I get surprised to see that there is a real conversion, a real regeneration that happens for these like little people. And that like messes up my world. Like I remember uh, Shane Claiborne, who is like kind of this modern monastic movement, saying something one time about how, you know, a lot of people he works with in South Philadelphia, they have really traumatic conversion experiences because they came out of broken families, relationships, drugs, gangs, and they found Jesus, uh, rather he rescued them and they found him by the Holy Spirit and that totally just jacked up their lives. And he says, listen, my testimony is that basically for all intents and purposes, on the outside, I was pretty normal. And then Jesus got a hold of me and all of my life has just been trying to come back from that. Yeah. Uh, because it just changes you so drastically, just trying to catch up. So I think there's a lot of truth in that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. My friend, uh, my friend Tim, who was the best man in my wedding, he, um, I remember real distinctly a conversation we had because we're sitting in his um, car in my driveway, and he looked at me and he said, "You know, you had such a dramatic about face conversion that I wish that I had that." And he was upset because he had no story to tell. And I remember looking at him and I remember kind of tearing up and I said to him, don't you ever, ever say that you wish you had a different testimony because the testimony you have of being raised in a Christian home and never remembering a time where you didn't love and follow Jesus. Like that is a beautiful testimony for sure. That, that is the, that is what every Christian parent wants for their child. Um, and I think we have to, you know, we have to remember that like, that's a testimony too. So that's, that's another aspect of reformed evangelism that I think um, probably needs to be addressed at some point. But the Reformed tradition, um, especially the more Presbyterian traditions that rely on catechisms and things, um, they have a real strong understanding of evangelizing their children, while at the same time kind of having a different understanding of what that means. So there's an element of Reformed evangelism is recognizing that throughout the history of the church, the primary way the church has grown is by making babies. Um, yeah, that's just the way it is. And the reform tradition has a real strong understanding of that. But before we before we go any further on any other topics, I just want to read, you know, we talk about making the main things, the main things and the however the rest of that saying goes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm going to go ahead and just read this before I get myself Smooth. into any other trouble. Uh, and I'm just going to read out of First Corinthians 15. He says, uh, starting in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. So 
Paul here lays out the gospel. Like when you ask the question, what is the gospel? This is the first verse we should go to. Now, there's a lot of other great gospel summaries in the scripture. So this is not the only one. But this one here, he straight out says, this is of first importance. This is this is right. what is most important in relation to the gospel are these facts. And some of these things are not things that you would normally think about, like the fact that he appeared to a certain group of people at a certain time. I've never used that in my gospel presentation. But when Paul is trying to explain the gospel, he says, look, this wasn't a private revelation. This wasn't some guy in a cave who thought that he was talking to an angel and wrote down some stuff. This wasn't a guy who found some metal metal discs in a field or claims he did. This was something that was public and it was extensive and everybody saw it. And most of those people, you can go talk to them. If you don't believe right. me, go talk to them. So Christianity is very different in terms of religions because it relies on a public historical record that is either verifiable or falsifiable. Most religions don't have that. So let's get after it with respect to pairing reform theology and evangelism, because you, you've already touched on that a bit. And here's the question that either people ask me or I put together in my head about this. It goes something like this generally. So does a belief in the absolute sovereignty of God take the wind out of the sails of evangelism? Or to make it even like more colloquial or maybe even more pointed, if God knows who is going to be saved and if he will save the elect no matter what, why waste our time evangelizing? So I'm really curious, how would you answer that question? Yeah, so um, the the main point of how you answer that question is that God doesn't ordain bare facts. He ordains the ends as well as the means. So it's not as though um, the elect are going to be saved no matter what. And so whatever happens, happens, they're going to get saved. What it is is that God not only says, these are the group of people that I'm going to save, and this is the way that I'm going to save them. And it's an honor and a joy and a privilege that he chooses to use his church in that endeavor. And primarily, that's how it works. Now, there are, you know, you hear stories of people who like had no interaction with the church and then they find a Bible in the park and they read through it and they, they get saved and then they find a church because that's what they recognize the New Testament says they need to do. But by and large, people are saved because Christians are involved in evangelism in one form or another. Right. I totally agree with that because I think, I think what you're saying is those strange things might be the exception, but the ordinary means by which God gathers his people is through their hearing and believing the gospel message, right. which goes all the way back to, you were in Romans like one sixteen. well, not Romans one sixteen, but um, where you're speaking of Paul talks a bit about being not ashamed of the gospel because right. this is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. But passage, I think it's Romans 10, where you're reading from, right? When we kind of link together, I think there's like this beautiful chain of saying, and this whole thing is taken out of context. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Right. O often I hear that verse and just use kind of like an isolation, like it's floating out there. Like you can just walk out. Anybody who says the name Jesus, somehow they receive as if it were like Harry Potter style, like magical salvation. But then Paul goes through and explains well, how are they going to be saved and how right. can they call on him in whom they have not believed and how exactly. can they believe in whom they never heard and how can they hear without somebody preaching? Like that seems really wonderfully logical, but I honestly, I think we forget that because the underpinnings of that question totally forget that. So right. I, I think it is really important to remember that God ordains both the means and the end right. and both of those are important. So my whole thesis on this would be 
of all theological streams, the Reformed perspective actually brings the most empowerment, both in its incentive for practice and in its ability to communicate why it's important that we evangelize. Right. And I get pumped up thinking that God has ordained both the end and the means, and that he may, and in fact wants to use me by command and by good obedience, to be the means through his plan, by his power, to bring about the kingdom. So that makes me say, I'm, I want to get out there boldly, that I have appointments all the time to, to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does. And a good kind of analogy to sort of get your head around this means ends distinction is um, think about like a nail that gets run into a board. So what sense would it make for me to say, well, God has ordained that this na- this nail will get hammered into this board. So I guess I don't need a hammer. Right. That just it doesn't right. make any sense at all <laughs> right. to say like, well, the end can come about without the means. So it's absolutely true that God could just make that nail drive itself into that hammer, but he doesn't. And that's, that's actually a theological error called hyper Calvinism. So sometimes yes. you hear the term hyper Calvinism tossed out and, and it's just kind of used to say like really, really Calvinistic. Uh, but that's not actually what the term means. Hyper Calvinism is a specific movement with specific set of errors. And one of the errors is that God does not use means. And so they would say like the, the, um, by and large, the elect are um, regenerate and and drawn to God apart from the preaching of the word. And so you should only offer the gospel to people who appear to be regenerate. Well, that doesn't make sense and it doesn't comport with what scripture says. And so that that error that we have, and it shows up in really surprising places in Reformed theology. You'd be surprised how often it comes up, this denial or this uh, misunderstanding of God using means. But Reformed theology has always believed and has always taught that um, God uses means. He ordains both the ends and the means, and he uses those means to his suiting in ordinary ways in most cases. And that ordinary means, you know, you hear about the ordinary means of grace um, when you're talking about uh, the sacraments and the preaching of the word in the Lord's Day service, all those things. But he ordinarily uses the preaching of the gospel by his children to bring about more, you know, more conversions into the faith. That's the ordinary way that he does it. And even though it may sound totally redundant and obvious, again, I feel like I want to say that the preaching of the gospel requires words. Right. <laughs> so again, going all the way back, it's and that's for something as uh, a royal priesthood that God has ordained through his son, Jesus Christ, building up uh, essentially a body, which is the church that we all are supposed to participate in. So sometimes I worry that even for myself, when I read the scriptures, when I'm hearing them preached, and it comes to this topic about you know the Great Commission, um, that I'm not hearing it. I'm listening to it, but I'm not really hearing it. Because right. if I were really understanding it, I would have a more thorough conviction that uh, I would just go out and do that. Because no matter what kind of person you are, whether you're an introvert, whether you're quiet, whether you feel like you have a good command of language or whether you feel like you lack some kind of articulation, the bottom line is everybody evangelizes something. And I'm not just saying that in terms of like how they behave, but you know, like I've had people from all walks of life. uh, I've had opportunity through work and other opportunities to speak to all kinds of wild and awesome people. And no matter who somebody is, if you find the thing that they identify with, they're talkative about it. And so sometimes that's like somebody trying to convince you to go gluten-free or to do P90X or to take up motocross. I don't know what it is. Or um, CrossFit. Man, CrossFit people do not (laughs) need a reason to evangelize. But all that to say, like, it's amazing how whether you're really into fishing or tennis, 
that's the thing that's going to come up. And when it does come up, no matter who you are, I feel like there's always this sense that you want to talk about it. You want to get into it. So kind of back to your point about setting ourselves into the word, into the scripture, such that we become familiar with it and are commanded by Jesus and under his command and constrained by his love to want to express that. I just think that's something we need to be, or maybe I'm just preaching myself, something I need to be reminded about. Yeah. And you know, I had, um, when I was in uh, college, I took a course that involved kind of theology of missions, theology of evangelism. And it drove me nuts at the time because I wanted to be like a real academic kind of in the ivory tower kind of theologian. Um, and the professor was having none of that. And he asked the question, if you could, if, if you had the opportunity right now to spend 15 minutes with the president of the United States, what, what would you talk to him about? What, what would you expect him to change? What would you try to convince him needs to be different? And he went around the room and, you know, people are talking about social justice issues, taxes, different laws, all of these different things. And we got to the end and he looked at the class and he said, this is the last thing I'm going to say. And then you're all dismissed. You get zeros for the day. And we all kind of shocked. We were all shocked. And he said, nobody said I would talk to him about Jesus. Hmm. And it was like this, this weight that just dropped on the class. That was like, it wasn't even our, in our minds to think about the fact that if I have 15, and I think at the time, I don't remember who was in office. I think it was George Bush. And so some of us argued like, well, he's a Christian, of course, but it, it was a hypothetical. And how many of us, if we were given the chance to sit down in front of president Trump, the first thing in, out of our mouth would say, you know what? I've got 15 minutes with you. Let me tell you about the most important truth you're ever going to hear. And Man, that's that Jesus, preaches. that's that Jesus died according to the scriptures and was buried and raised according to the scriptures. This is of first importance. Um, and that's, I mean, I'm preaching to myself too, because I don't think that way, right? When I, when I think about what I need to do, when I go into the office on Monday, my first thought is not share the gospel with my coworkers. Usually my first thought is like the list of patients that I have in my head that I know need to be scheduled for this test or that appointment or whatever. I'm not thinking about that. And that's not to say like, when you go to work, like you're being paid to do your job. So you have to, that's like the first thing before you can even be a good witness in your, your workplaces. You have to be a good employee. You have to be someone who's trustworthy, who is honest. All of that is, that's where a lot of the Francis of Assisi quote is getting at, but you can't leave it there. You can't say, well, if if I schedule these patients well, or if I do my best to put together this financial presentation, or if I sell computers as good as I can, my, my manager is just going to fall down on his knees and ask me what's so special about me. That's that's I ridiculous. Hope that happens to you, but that's I ridiculous, really hope that right? They're going. They may say like, "Well, wh- how are you possibly as efficient as you are?" Or they may say, "Why are you such a screw up?" Right. So we have to have like both of those. We have to have that piece in place in order to be good witnesses. But at the same time, like me scheduling patients really efficiently and getting good reviews on the phone and all of those things, that's not going to convert any of my coworkers. Yeah, I, I think it's important to provide a distinction that I'm, I'm definitely not saying that you have to walk in and just drop sermon bombs on everybody in every conversation. But it is as important as you say it is with respect to having a mind that takes every opportunity to explain why you are the way you are and what motivates you. Yeah, And I know some people that do this exceptionally well in the sense that they're just so in tune. They are actually so in love with Jesus that it comes out at the right times in the right ways because it's top of mind. It's not kitsch. It's not corny. Right. It's not like they're trying to, it's not like a, one of those corny tracks where it looks like a $1 bill and it's really just a fake you out kind of thing. 
it's really authentic. So when somebody in their office is struggling with something or somebody is really stressed out, they almost like really slyly insert the gospel, yep. not necessarily because what they're trying to do is convert somebody, but they're trying to bring truth in the situation and right. peace and loving kindness, all the, the fruit of the spirit. And I want to be that kind of person that yeah. uh, somebody can come to me and speak with me and Jesus just comes out. And one of the ways I've been trying to work toward this area, because I think all of our Christian lives are, we have the idea that Christ has called us to, like Paul said, then walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So we're just trying to like eliminate the gap between who we are and our identity. And one of the ways I've been trying to do that uh, realistically is I've just been uh, convicted that I have this like really strange hypocrisy with language in the way that I speak. So I will be really quick to speak in kind of Christian terms because that is who I am when I'm with other Christians. But when I'm in a more secular environment, I just drop the Christian language, though I'm saying the same thing. Yeah. And I was convicted that no, I need to be saying things like, you know, if the Lord wills or, uh, yeah, God has been very patient in my life this week or that is to God's glory or to his credit, which I would like say without reservation in the right company. But I need to recognize in the wrong company where the people might misunderstand or might just be weirded out by that to also say it. Yeah, because that is in a way being a witness with some words. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, like, I think sometimes, too, we, you know, we're confronted with a coworker who is struggling in their marriage or is having financial difficulties or whatever, whatever kind of like temporal need or problem they have. And we, we're very quick to sort of offer wisdom from the scriptures and, and we tr kind of translate that. And I don't want to say mask it, but we don't make it explicit where it's coming from. Right. But how quick are we to offer Jesus? Like yeah, that's that's the thing is like all of the wisdom of the scripture. That's great. You might be able to give them a um, a temporarily happier marriage, or you might be able to give them some wisdom from Proverbs to help them with their budget or something like that. But at the end of the day, what good is it to profit a man his you know the whole world if he loses his soul? What good is it to profit my coworker a stronger marriage if she loses her soul? And that's I think that's something that I've become. Um, increasingly convicted of is that I have a lot of coworkers that I'm not a hundred percent sure why, because it's not like I have my life a hundred percent together, but they come to me for advice about things outside of work, whether it's a, I've got a, you know, my kid got in trouble at school. What do you think about this? Or how would you handle it? And I'm, I'm very quick to say, well, you know, um, I think that a father's job is to discipline their child. Um, and sometimes that involves the rod and, um, you know, I think not disciplining your child can actually be uh, harmful to them. And it's sort of a way that you show you don't love them the way you claim you do. And that's great advice, I, I, but it's great advice because it comes out of the Bible. But I've never once said to my coworker, you know, I think your son would probably have less behavior issues if you got him involved in the church and he became a mm. Christian. Mm. I never said that. And I, I don't, I don't think it's because I'm afraid it could be, it could be some sort of latent fear of, um, feeling like maybe I'll lose my job. Uh, I don't think I would. I mean, we're pretty open about what we talk about. We've, and religion comes up on all, on all sides. Um, but I've never done that. I've never even thought to do that. And I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure why. In either way, I totally feel you on that because I think I've been there myself many times, even just this week. But it is a paradigm shift, right? I mean, thinking yeah. in that way to say that I'm going to take Jesus on my lips into every conversation. Maybe it's just acknowledging that even though there are many questions that he is actually, in accordance with the song, the answer right. that we need to keep coming back to him yeah. for all those things. And that's one of the reasons why I really love the Reformed tradition, because it makes me 
even more passionate about evangelism because first I understand that Jesus commands us to evangelize. So when he says in Mark 15, of course, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to right. the whole creation as like explicit as it gets it seemingly. Um, but also that if my chief duty and delight is to glorify God, then I'm moved by the fact that the father is honored when the son is honored right. and that the supreme means of honoring the father is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I used to be really thrown by that because I was like, what about you know those who are not going to believe? And really the Lord has worked on me to help me realize and become comfortable with the fact that when the non-elect reject the gospel, the preaching just leaves them all the more without excuse when they receive the condemnation that they justly deserve. And, I, and I'm in that group because I, re- I should receive that, that condemnation as well, except for Jesus Christ. So for me, that's one of the things I really love about the Reformed tradition. It systematizes all of these expressions and commands, which are evident in the full counsel of God and really just gets me pumped up. It's wonderful reinforcement of what I believe God has already brought to bear through the scriptures when he speaks to us about the mantle that we have to bear with evangelism. So I I want to get like your take. What are some of the things about the Reformed tradition that make you or impassion you with respect to evangelism? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that is, is really helpful is recognizing that in the Reformed tradition, there's a strong emphasis on not separating Christ from his benefits. And so, you know, kind of talking about the conversation we just came out of, we're quick to offer the benefits of Christ, but we do so without offering Christ. And so for me, you know, the, the beauty of the gospel is not that we get to go to heaven or that we don't have to go to hell. Like those are all really great things, but the beauty of the gospel is that we get God. And, um, for me, that has been an onus on, um, on evangelism that I need to do better at, but that has been anytime I do, I am successful in sharing the gospel in bringing the scriptures to bear in a conversation. It's been that I can look at it and say, this is what I have to offer. I can offer you God. Like what other, what other religion can say that? And, and in a lot of um, other Christian traditions at their best articulation, they share that conviction. But a lot of times when they um, actually communicate it, they slide a different direction, right? So it, it becomes in its worst forms, the, the prosperity gospel. I can offer you health, wealth, and, and earthly blessings if you follow Jesus. Well, there's nothing about getting Jesus in that. Um, right. You know, you can get to some of the more Arminian flavors where it really is all about escaping hell, you know, or even like some of the more hardcore dispensationalist kinds of streams of thought left behind stuff. I can get you out of the tribulation. Right. You won't have to suffer for those seven years. You can go straight to heaven and not have to worry about that. So we have to be really intentional to offer Christ and his benefits, not just his benefits. Um, and that's just a really helpful reminder for me anytime I engage in that kind of conversation. Hmm. I like that. It's one of those good reminders. If you've ever heard that phrase, you can get kind of like a, like that makes uh, Christ seem like an insurance contract. Right. Like you get heaven, but you can live like hell until you get there. Exactly. This idea that all you get is just like the ice cream sundae at the end of the day, as opposed to the abundant life, which in my ice cream sundae, I don't know what that would be as an equivalent <laughs> metaphor. But um, yeah, I, I love that because again, for me, it, it all goes back to the, the sovereignty of God empowering and propelling evangelism. So I'm glad you mentioned the Arminian kind of train of thought because that's kind of where I want to get your opinion on and push us into to one other direction. And and that is like, I, I believe that it's only when we recognize 
God's absolute sovereignty that we can be assured of evangelical results. And I think that God blesses the faithful dissemination of his word, and he promises that that word will never return to him void or empty, but it's going to accomplish, of course, the purpose that he sent it. Uh, I mean, that itself is just, I'm just paraphrasing the scripture. Yeah. So what's odd is, tell me if you've ever experienced this, Tony, because it might just be me, and hopefully you and somebody else has has experienced this as well. But I've noticed sometimes well-intentioned, either in different churches or in small groups, or even you're, you're praying with a loved one, that we tend to pray with fingers crossed. And what I mean by that is I think there's this potential discrepancy may exist between a desire in some places for free will, especially especially like Arminian-defined free will in salvation and God's sovereign control all over other areas of life. Yeah. So there's this weirdness where you'll get the sense that people want to sometimes protect that the gospel message can be accepted by all people, that there is some kind of parody that in which we start, whatever that is, however we define it. But we pray for other things as if that doesn't exist. So certainly when it comes to healing, we want God to be completely sovereign. When it comes to our workplaces and our environments and our careers, we'd like him to be completely sovereign, even over the weather, certainly like him to be completely sovereign. And then sometimes in salvation as well. So there'll be this sense that, well, we need to go witness. And the reason why we go witness is because everybody has equal opportunity to accept. And yet when I hear those prayers, what they result then in is either you pray with fingers crossed in the sense of like, Holy Spirit, please come and make fertile ground. Please lead the way. Please go ahead of us. Um, Or you end up praying in such a way that you're reformed and you don't realize it because you're asking God to change hearts and to till up the soil, which goes against the free will you're just trying to protect. So am I the only person that's experienced this or is this something you run into as well? I have run into it and I run into it more on that second half where you have people who a lot of times are really, really opposed to the idea of God's meticulous sovereignty. Right. But then when it comes to praying for their brother, who's not a believer, they will very quickly say, Lord, bring him, you know, bring him to a saving knowledge of you. Well, right. The, on, on your theology, God can't do that. You know, he, he, he can try really hard. Um, and, and, you know, in, in their most consistent, it's bring people into, bring the right people into his lives. It's kind of like a math equation. Like, well, if, if this person comes into their life and they bring this verse to bear, you know, this plus that equals this, um, which I just isn't, that's not the gospel, right? It's not, it's God saves those whom he will. And he, he definitely saves those whom he will. Um, you know, I, I heard it said once, um, preach, preach like, an, uh, preach like a Armenian and pray like a Calvinist. And I actually think you should preach like a Calvinist, but uh, there's, there's something <laughs> to, there's something to that because a lot of times when I hear that said, it's, it's Arminians that are saying it or it's Lutherans yeah. who aren't Arminians, but they, they tend to, in certain discussions, land on that side of the conversation. Um, it, it is the case that like, we have to preach promiscuously. And what I mean by that is we have to proclaim the gospel to all that goes back to the hyper Calvinism. The other error that the hyper Calvinists had was that you shouldn't offer the gospel to people that you don't think are elect or you don't know are elect. Well, we have no idea who those people are. And so we, we proclaim the gospel universally to all people without regard to what we think of them in terms of their race, their nationality or their salvific says any of that. We proclaim the gospel and we trust the Holy spirit to call whom he will, uh, in accord with the Father's plan. And that said, when we preach the gospel, we have to be careful too, because sometimes we say things that we don't believe are true. 
So, you right. know, it sounds silly, but when you stand in front of a crowd of people and say, Jesus died for you. Right. Yeah, well, exactly. That, that may not be true for some of those people. And um, it sounds hard to say that, right? The people, the guys over at the Reform Podcast got in trouble early on because they said you shouldn't have your kids sing Jesus loves me because he might not. And that's that's not true. I, I don't agree with them on taking it to that extent. And I don't think they would agree with themselves looking back at it at that point. But when you go before people, rather than saying, you know, Christ died for you to be more accurate and more you know, reflective of the scripture, he's like, Christ died for sinners whom he would save. He saves all he calls to himself. And you may be one of those people if you repent and believe. And that's the way we have to preach is we have to say, and this is exactly what you're talking about, is God's sovereignty empowers our evangelism and guarantees the results that he desires. And in many cases, that result is conversion. It's somebody will hear your message and maybe 30 years down the road, they, they will remember something you said to them. Uh, you may never know. You may never know till you get to heaven and someone greets you that you don't expect. I mean, that's kind of anthropomorphizing the way things will be. But it you may you may be surprised in a really great way based on who's there and who's who's with you in the resurrection. Uh, but we have to preach the gospel to everybody. We don't get to pick and choose who we're going to give it to. And that's why, for me, I think if you were to ask me, does the Reformed tradition, take the wind out of the sails of evangelism. I would say, no, Arminianism does that. But exactly. they don't, you don't even realize it. Yeah. Because it makes you feel like you're helpless and powerless and you have to be good enough. You have to be articulate enough. Yep. You have to go in with the right approach and the right strategy and the right program. But believing that God has a sovereign plan to bring all his elect to himself actually encourages all that evangelism. It gives us confidence to fulfill our God-given responsibility to spread the gospel. And it also means, and this has been so huge for me at several points in my life, it means that we know that our labor in the Lord is never in vain. Right. And for me, that is such a great form of encouragement that I know that when I work hard for the Lord, taking seriously the scripture, and I really like the way that you kind of gave that, you know, to use just kind of a common term like gospel pitch, because that was all scriptural. Didn't insert anything because the scripture doesn't say, well, Jesus died for you. He said for he died for all those whom he calls. Right. And that that's important. And that debate is just one over efficacy, which is a little bit outside of the scope of this conversation. Right. But uh, nonetheless, it, this is why I, I just love that tradition because it, it describes and systematizes what the scripture describes as proper evangelism. Yeah. And I get stoked and pumped knowing that I can go out. I've got the full power and wherewithal of the Lord behind me through the Holy Spirit to bring about everything that he wants to when we preach the word. Yeah. And when we pull that away and start saying, well, everybody has a choice and there's some like, so even their example, what struck me is even somebody who prays, well, father, will you please bring like the right people in their life? Like even there, there is a sense of moving against the grain of free will or freedom in the sense that well, isn't it fortunate that that person who you're trying to save has somebody who's willing to pray for them in that way? Right. Where There's sovereignty even in that, that God is bringing to bear his will in that situation. So I love what the Reformed tradition says about evangelism, not just because uh, it's awesome, which it is, but in many, many ways because it goes against what my natural mind would want to superimpose on this activity. Yeah. Uh, it's actually the exact opposite. I would love for everybody to have the same opportunities in life. That is just not a reality. Right. And so what's better than having the same opportunities in life 
is having a God who controls all opportunity and can save those whom he desires to out of his free will and by his mercy. I find that to be much better and way more empowering. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I could say it any better than that. Well, great. We just great. had a moment there. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think that probably should uh, just about wrap it up. Those are as good of closing words as any. So don't forget uh, to check us out on iTunes. Uh, give us a five-star rating. Uh, we would really appreciate that. It helps other people to find the show. Uh, also, make sure you check out Fast God Stuff, uh, fastgodstuff.com, right? That's right. And then also the Reformed Outlook, which is at reformedoutlook.com. You can also find both those shows in iTunes. So check them out and give them five-star ratings as well. And Jesse, if someone wanted to get a hold of us through some other means, how would they do that? Well, the best way would be to leave a voicemail because, again, use your words. Call us. That number is 607-444-BROS or 607-444-2767. You can also hit us up on Twitter at Reformed Brohood. That was hard for me to say for some reason. <laughs> or you can email us at reformedbrotherhood at gmail.com. Great. Well, that should just about do it. We are so thrilled that you joined us, and we hope you join us next week. And until next one, next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. Uh, what if I'm far from home?